Hey students, welcome back to our asynchronous podcast for Theories of Counseling and Psychotherapy. In this episode, we are discussing Chapter 8, Gestalt Therapy. As you take some slow, deep, cleansing breaths, focusing on the physiological experience of taking those deep breaths, noting the sensation of your waistband getting tighter perhaps as you take a deep breath in, and what the sensation of that slow intentional exhale is. Continue taking some of these slow, deep, intentional breaths and just noticing how your body is changing and responding to this. At this moment, you may want to set an intention for yourself in today's learning. Perhaps your goal is to get through Perhaps your goal is to increase your understanding or reinforce the learning that you gained from the reading. Whatever it may be, set an intention for your learning time today. And as you take one final slow, intentional breath, start coming back into whichever physical space you find yourself as we jump into Gestalt Psychology. Right, so let's give this theory some context before we jump in. We're still talking about this humanistic and existential category of therapies. So remember in that visual chart that we have, that we have the existential slash humanistic category. And within that is person-centered with Carl Rogers, which we covered in our last episode, and now gestalt psychology or gestalt psychotherapy, which we are covering in this episode. So this is a type of existential uh, theory, an existential approach that does some integration with some other theories. And it integrates nicely with other theories as well. So gestalt psychology is the idea that things are best understood when you view them as a whole, keeping in mind that the early history of psychology and thus of psychotherapy was from a very scientific inquiry-based understanding in which we break things down to the smallest possible unit we can understand it, to molecules and atoms and things we can put on a slide under a microscope, and that's what gives us the best understanding. Well, Gestalt Psychology says, let's back it up and let's actually look at humans as a whole being. If we only focus on emotions, we're missing out on other things. If we only focus on cognitions or we only focus on behaviors or we only focus on somatic symptoms, we're missing pieces of the bigger picture. And thus, we're not understanding, we're not treating the person in the best way that we can. So from Gestalt Psychology, that theory of viewing the person as the whole, out of that is born Gestalt Therapy. And the biggest name associated with Gestalt Therapy is Fritz Perls. And actually, Gestalt Therapy has some characters with some interesting names. 
Um, we have Fritz Pearls. We also have Irving Polster and Miriam Polster. So Gestalt therapy is an existential, phenomenological, and process-based approach. The initial goal in Gestalt therapy is for clients to expand their awareness of what they are experiencing in the present moment. And the belief is that increased awareness is curative. So think about the things that will come into your office most often, the diagnoses you'll see most often. Right off the bat, anxiety and depression. With both of these diagnoses, we're ruminating on other things. We're not connected to the present. So the more we can stay connected in the present, the idea is that we will have a decrease in these symptoms, particularly around anxiety. Psychotherapy and especially early psychotherapy are all about anxiety. More so in modern era, we see depression, but anxiety is the big one you'll see a lot. We're trying to decrease those symptoms. Gestalt theory, theory says the way we do that is through awareness of the present moment. Through becoming aware of our denied parts and working towards owning our experience, we can become integrated or whole. So when we mute parts of our life, when we ignore them, we might say we suppress them, we're not living as a whole. We're not integrating all the different parts of ourselves. We're denying ourselves part of our own existence. And that's the opposite of what we want to do. We're looking towards wholeness in gestalt psychotherapy. Self-acceptance, knowledge of the environment, responsibility for choices, and the ability to make contact with their field are high values. You can hear some of those existential values in there. Um, the ability to make choices requires you to have an awareness of what those choices are. In more contemporary understanding of gestalt psychotherapy, there's a bigger stress on dialogue and the I-thou relationship between the client and the therapist. Like our other existential theories, gestalt really values and emphasizes support, acceptance, empathy, respect, and dialogue, but it also welcomes confrontation. So this is something you would probably never see Carl Rogers do. He wouldn't really confront somebody because it would be taking them out of their phenomenological view. But in Gestalt psychotherapy, we welcome confrontation. It's part of the healing process. Let's take a look at how a Gestalt therapist views human nature. Remember that we're moving towards a holistic sense of self, that we're trying to integrate all of the different aspects of ourself to be our full, real selves. And we do this through building self-awareness. By becoming aware, we're able to make informed choices and thus live a more meaningful existence. So Fritz Perls, in his therapeutic work with his clients, he always had these two goals that he was working towards. Moving the client from environmental support to self-support and reintegrating the disowned parts of one's personality. So becoming more self-sufficient, which also means becoming more in touch with integrating those different parts of yourself. 
because awareness equals choice equals power. A basic assumption of Gestalt therapy is that individuals have the capacity to self-regulate when they are aware of what's happening in and around them. The Gestalt theory of change posits that the more we work at becoming who or what we are not, the more we remain the same. So the more energy we put into this version of ourselves that maybe isn't our full integrated um, aware self, we're getting even further away from who, no, we stay the same. The Gestalt theory of change posits that the more we work at becoming who or what we are not, the more we remain the same. So when we keep putting energy into this version of ourself that is not the wholly integrated, fully aware self, change cannot happen. We stay exactly where we are. One of Fritz Perl's good friends was a psychiatrist, and Arnie Iser is this person's name. They suggested that the authentic change occurs more from being who we are than from trying to be who we are not. This sense of acceptance. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is what has happened to me in my life. When we get to that place, that is where we are in the authentic change place rather than striving against this other version of ourselves that isn't the real us. Spicer called this simple tenet the paradoxical theory of change, the idea that we are constantly moving between who we should be and who we are. When we're trying to move towards who we should be, change cannot occur. Authentic change occurs when we are being who we are. So Gestalt therapists often ask clients to invest themselves fully in their current condition rather than striving to become who they should be. Rather than setting a goal of this is who I want to become, so these are the five steps I'm going to take to get there, a Gestalt therapist wants to slow everything down. Let's pause and be here in this exact moment in time. We're not looking forward. We're not looking back. We are right here, right now. Some basic principles of Gestalt theory include holism. You may hear this as like holistic health. It's kind of the same idea. Um, In Gestalt therapy terms, it's the full range of human functioning, including thoughts, feelings, behaviors, body, memories, and dreams. So this is the first theory where we're really seeing more of a full integration of everything that's come to be in psychotherapy so far. We're valuing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors rather than just focusing on one of those things. But we're also integrating the body and memories and dreams. Those were things, memories and dreams, were previously more so associated with psychodynamic schools of thought. Person-centered said, eh, you know, that's, that's good, but I don't really care as much about that. So in Gestalt, we are looking at holism, the entire human picture. The entire human experience has to be understood in order for the person to actually be understood. Gestalt therapy is based on field theory, which is essentially that the client is a participant in a constantly changing field. 
the organism must be seen in its environment or in its context as part of the constantly changing field. So we pay attention to and explore what is occurring at the boundary between the person and the environment. To take a bigger scope of this in gestalt psychology, we talk about figure and ground. And this is how we literally view and perceive things, a figure and how they are grounded. So is that picture of a person, um, the person is the figure and is the ground some clouds? Is it an actual terra firma, like earth, uh, what is happening in that picture? So figure and ground. Figure in gestalt therapy is the aspects of the individual's experience that are most salient at any moment. And ground are the aspects of the presentation that are often out of the person's awareness. So figure is the things that are in my conscious awareness. They're very salient in this moment. And ground are the things that the therapist is really going to be noticing. The client's not really aware of these aspects of their functioning. Cues to this background can be found on the surface through physical gestures, tone of voice, demeanor, other nonverbal content. Perhaps even the way your client is dressed, how their hygiene is that day. All of these things give us clues within just a few seconds of being with our client, that's establishing what gestalt therapy would refer to as ground. Another principle of gestalt theory is the figure formation process. This is how an individual organizes experiences from moment to moment. So in the foreground is the figure and in the background is the ground. So for an example, imagine seeing a woman on a hill in the distance. You don't see her clearly, but you get an overall impression of this figure. So as you move closer, you gain more awareness of the figure and she becomes increasingly clear and more detailed. You can see her face, the way she buttons her blouse. In the figure formation process, contemporary gestalt therapists facilitate the client's movement toward and away from this figure of interest. The dominant needs of the individual at a given moment influence the process. So something has become apparent. A figure has emerged. And the therapist can guide the client kind of towards that figure, getting more clarity, getting more detail, um, having a kind of more narrowed in perspective, or they can guide the client away from that figure. So let's say that there's an issue with a coworker, and that's what the client's talking about. The therapist can guide the client either towards the coworker or towards the confrontation or the issue, or they can guide the client away from it to gain more perspective, to increase the knowledge of the background that's existing. So the therapist can gain more information about the context by guiding the client away from specifics of that encounter, or they can gather details through leading the client towards it. The final theory of gestalt theory that 
we'll cover today is organismic self-regulation. This is the emergence of a need, a sensation, or an interest that disturbs an individual's equilibrium. Something comes up, and now we're off. We're kind of thrown off by the presence of this need or sensation. This might sound a little bit Freudian psychoanalytic here, that there's this thing from the unconscious kind of coming into consciousness that's now upsetting our homeostasis. Something's becoming apparent and it's throwing us off. The figure formation process in gestalt therapy is intertwined with the principle of organismic self-regulation. Organisms will do their best to regulate themselves given their own capabilities and the resources of their environment. We can take actions and make contacts to restore equilibrium or to contribute to growth and change. Do we want to stay the same? What resources will we pull in to stay the same? Or do we want to change? What resources will we pull in to facilitate that change? In the therapeutic context, what comes out is the interest to the client or what the client needs to gain equilibrium or to make that change. So a gestalt therapist might direct the client's awareness to the figures that emerge from the background during a therapy session and use the figure formation process as a guide for the focus of therapeutic work. It's like being a detective. So your client's telling you this story or they're telling you about an experience and you're noticing patterns. A figure is emerging. So you can pull that figure into the client's awareness by highlighting it, by kind of guiding them towards it. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about times where you've experienced this. In the Gestalt theory of psychotherapy, if change is going to happen, contact is necessary. Contact is made by seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, and moving. So, using the five senses. Contact is healthy when we can interact with nature and other people without losing our own individuality or our sense of self. So prerequisites for good contact are clear awareness, full energy, and the ability to express oneself. Resistance to contact, uh, also referred to as boundary disturbances, are the defenses we develop to prevent us from experiencing the present fully. In gestalt theory, since the experience of present awareness is so important, the theory then is that conflict around this will happen, that there's always going to be some type of opposition towards us achieving our goals. So resistance to contact, boundary disturbances are the defenses we develop to prevent us from experiencing the present fully. And this may sound a little bit like our defense mechanisms from psychoanalytic theory. And there is some overlap here. The following are five different kinds of contact boundary disturbances. Introjection, projection, retroflexion, deflection, and confluence. Introjection is our tendency to uncritically accept others' beliefs and standards without assimilating them to make them congruent with who we are. We take things at face value regardless of any logic that may be surrounding this. These introjects remain alien to us because we have not analyzed and reconstructed them. 
We haven't assigned meaning to them. When we interject, we passively incorporate what the environment provides rather than clearly identifying what we want or need. We're taking in the things around us at face value. We're not analyzing them. We're not assessing whether it's right for us or whether it has any validity or meaning for us. We're just absorbing everything. If we remain in this stage, our energy is bound up in taking things as we find them and believing that authorities know what is best for us rather than working out things for ourselves. You see this a lot in intimate partnerships or when someone is hoping to enter into an intimate partnership with another person, they'll just believe everything that's said. Um, They can't possibly be wrong. They're the smartest person ever. And there's a bit of romanticism around this too that can fade over time. But the idea that whatever this person says goes, I'm just going with what they're doing, whatever they say is right. We can also see this in a parent-child dynamic as well. Projection is the reverse of introjection. In projection, we disown certain aspects of ourselves by assigning them to the environment. This is akin to the projection we describe in psychoanalytic psychodynamic therapy. There's things we don't like about ourselves or things we struggle to integrate into our whole understanding of ourselves, so we project them onto other people. So if you are a very disorganized person, but you have a hard time integrating that aspect of yourself, then you might say things like, oh, my sister is so disorganized. She just can never keep things together. She's always losing papers and losing track of time, when in reality you're describing yourself, but you're projecting those qualities onto someone else. Retroflection consists of turning back onto ourselves what we would like to do to someone else or doing to ourselves what we would like someone else to do to or do for us. This process is principally an interruption of the action phase in the cycle of experience and typically involves a fair amount of anxiety. So think about a time when you were really mad to the point where you were about to lose control. You may have hit your hands hard against your steering wheel when a car cut you off or kicked an object, punched a pillow or a wall. All of these actions end up turning against your own body because it's a way to deflect the negative outcome that would ensue from directing this action towards the person it's actually meant for. If you were to actually go after that person who cut you off and hit them, there would be significant consequences for you. Whereas if you do it to yourself, if you hurt your own hands by hitting the steering wheel, that consequence cannot come to be. Retroflection is not only constrained to violent actions, but to all actions that involve connection with others in your environment and to the environment. One of the reasons we avoid action is because of the threat of nothingness. So once you've reached that stage of action, there's no going back. People who tend to self-harm or self-mutilate often are directing aggression inward out of fear of directing it toward others. Now, oftentimes these behaviors are not consciously done. Retroflection largely exists within our unconscious. We're not trying to do these things. We're not, as a teenager is cutting themselves, they're not thinking through the process of, gee, it's a lot easier to do this to myself than actually taking out my anger 
about my parents on my parents. We don't think through those things. This is a defense mechanism. Remember, most of our defense mechanisms exist in the unconscious and our gestalt concept of these being boundary violations or boundary disturbances are also largely unconscious. Deflection is the process of distraction or veering off so that it's difficult to maintain a sustained sense of contact. Little kids are the masters of deflection. I can't tell you how many sessions I've been in getting to some good, deep content with a kiddo, and they have a total deflection moment where they're talking for one second about their trauma or their parents, and then, oh, look, Miss Brittany, a squirrel. Totally has nothing to do with anything we're talking about, but they're just get, allowing themselves to get distracted or even seeking a distraction so we don't have to maintain contact with this difficult emotion, this difficult story. We also see deflection. Um, it's a way of diffusing the tension. So we might have an overuse of humor, um, employment of sarcasm or even dark humor at times, abstract generalizations, and asking questions rather than statements. Well, it's okay that I did that, right? Rather than, I think it's okay that I did that. When we deflect, we speak through and for others beating around the bush rather than being direct and engaging the environment in an inconsistent and inconsequential basis, which results in emotional depletion. Our, our unconscious is trying to protect us by avoiding these topics that are painful, that cause emotions, or that have consequences that might be a little too scary for us. But in that process of deflection, in the process of disturbing these boundaries, we're causing emotional distress in ourselves. And finally, confluence. This involves blurring the differentiation between the self and the environment. As we strive to blend in and get along with everybody, there's no real line between internal experience and outer reality. We see this often with clients who really want to be liked or have a strong need or desire to be liked, um, who are conflict avoidant, and seem to be very comfortable with enmeshment. Enmeshment being like a full, unboundaried joining with a person. So we talk about enmeshment often with families, where there are not strong boundaries or what we may consider not strong enough boundaries between family members. We may describe that system as enmeshed, uh, but we can also enmesh with other people. It's safer to just go with the flow and be one of the herd rather than to stand out. Conflict can be scary. So in confluence, the self and the environment are kind of blurred together. You go with the flow for the sake of survival. When clients are project or when... <laughs> When confluence is at play, it can be very difficult to have a meaningful connection with the client. The therapeutic dialogue might seem very superficial, or they just kind of go along with whatever you're saying. They never really speak up for themselves. So asking questions that help bring them back into cog cognizant awareness, conscious awareness, might ask questions like, what are you doing right now? What are you experiencing at this moment? And what do you want right now? All those questions are bringing us back into the here and now and giving the client a sense of individual identity.
one of the major, major points of gestalt therapy and one of the big keywords to take away is the present, here and now. Other theories also value the here and now, but with gestalt therapy, especially if we're practicing from a more purist perspective, that's the only place where we are. And what has been noticed in gestalt therapy is that we tend to talk about our feelings. I think I was feeling kind of sad. Notice how many qualifiers were in there. I think, kind of. We had so many words before we got to the actual emotion word. So one of the things that gestalt psychology likes to do is instead of telling a story about what happened, tell it as if it's happening right now. So if I'm explaining a conflict I was having with one of my siblings, and I'm talking about it in this fashion, my brother called and he sounded really angry. The gestalt therapist might intervene and say, say it like it's happening right now, like you're narrating the story as it's unfolding. My brother is calling. He sounds mad. Taking that conversation out of the past tense and bringing it into the present tense, it shifts our thinking, very much focused in right here, right now. And the theory behind this is that it allows the client to re-enter that emotional state they were in and experience it in the present so we can process it as a presently existing feeling rather than something that happened a month ago or two weeks ago, whatever it may have been. Gestalt therapists may ask questions like, what is happening now? What is going on now? What are you experiencing as you sit there and attempt to talk? How are you attempting to withdraw at this moment? How are you experiencing fear? Anything we can do to bring that emotional experience and bring even that physical, visceral experience into the here and now, bring the client's awareness to how this is occurring right now in this exact second, that's a big function of gestalt therapy, bringing it into the present. Oftentimes, clients are only able to do this for short bursts of time because it's difficult to do. Part of why therapy kind of exists in the mental frame that we have it is that we process what happened. We always want to talk about the story as if it's over. Living in that story, being actually in it, is challenging. It's difficult. We have a low tolerance for it. So we have to find ways to build our tolerance for it. So your client may only able to be able to do this for a short amount of time before they slip back into past tense, and that's okay. A gestalt therapist would see that the low tolerance and the slipping back into the past is a boundary disturbance that we're trying to deflect, we're trying to avoid being in the present moment. So they might even bring that up. Oh, you know, I noticed that when you started talking about your brother, that's when you slipped back into the past tense. It seemed like it was okay for you to talk about your coworker in the present tense, but when that story shifted and your brother became involved, we moved into the past tense. What's going on there? Maybe can we try telling that story again in the present tense and then exploring those emotions in the moment? What are you feeling right now? So that's not to say that gestalt therapists refuse to work with the past. The work of the gestalt therapist then is to bring the past into the now. 
The therapist might direct the client to bring the fantasy here or tell me the dream as though you were having it now. So to reiterate the main premise of Gestalt Therapy, our power is in the present. And for many people, the power of the present is lost. So they may focus on past mistakes or engage in endless resolutions and plans for the future. Our job as a Gestalt-oriented therapist is to bring them back into the present. How can you exist right here and right now? And maybe even exploring, why is that hard for you to do? Another major component in Gestalt therapy is unfinished business. That's another key word you can associate with this. Unfinished business. This is where our feelings about the past are unexpressed. These feelings are often associated with distinct memories and fantasies. If the feelings are not fully experienced, they linger in the background and they interfere with effective contact with the here and now. So this may sound a little like uh, unresolved conflicts from psychoanalytic theory. It's very much similar, but we're using different language and we're having a stronger emphasis on the here and now. We want to have contact with the here and now utilizing our five senses and we need to address this unfinished business, this stuff left over from your past in order to do that. The effects of unfinished business not only show up in anxious behaviors or depressed behaviors and feelings, but also somatically within the body. The therapist's task is to assist clients in exploring these bodily expressions. We emphasize paying attention to your physical experience on the assumption that if feelings are unexpressed, they tend to result in some physical sensations or problems like sleep disturbance, mysterious stomach pains or headaches, constantly feeling exhausted, um, or an ache or pain that just won't seem to go away and there's no medical cause for it, could be the result of some unfinished business that is causing blockage in the body. One external support for moving through these blockages and resolving unfinished business is not possible, an impasse occurs. This is the stuck point where external support is not available or the customary way of being does not work. Our maladaptive behaviors and maladaptive strategies are not serving us anymore. Uh, the friends we usually rely on to vent to aren't available or it just doesn't seem to be working anymore. Our task then is to accompany the client in experiencing the impasse without rescuing them and without frustrating them to be with them. We encourage our clients to fully experience the condition of being stuck. The only way out is through. We're not trying to get over it. We're not trying to rush past it or ignore it. The only way out is through. By completely experiencing the impasse, we get to be in contact with frustration and accept whatever it is rather than wishing things were different. Acceptance of the here and now is what we're all about in Gestalt Therapy. A Gestalt Therapist might focus on where energy is located, how it's used, and how it can be blocked. Clients may not be aware of their energy, they may not be aware, aware of where it's located, or they may be experiencing it in a negative way. So one of our jobs is to help clients find the focus of uninterrupted energy, find the ways in which they are blocking energy, and transform that blockage into more adaptive behaviors. 
We can do this by encouraging clients to not rid themselves of bodily symptoms, but to delve fully into tension states and bodily symptoms. This is where we can use exaggerating symptoms uh, as a strategy to help clients become in touch, more in contact with this uncomfortable experience. So if a client um, is maybe uh, like bouncing their foot a lot as you're talking to them, you may encourage them to really aggressively bounce their leg up and down, exaggerate that motion. Or if you have a client whose arms are crossed very tightly and their body language is very closed off and restricted, okay, let's exaggerate that. Let's get really closed off. Maybe you can hunch your back over, maybe curl your head in. What feels right to you to exaggerate that motion? We're encouraging clients to recognize how their resistance is being expressed in the body and using exaggeration as a way to help them identify this and transform that blocked energy into a more adaptive behavior. Let's get a clear picture of what our therapeutic goals in Gestalt therapy look like. We're moving toward an increased awareness of ourselves. We're encouraging our clients to assume ownership of their experience. We're developing skills and acquiring values, becoming more aware of all of our senses, learning to accept responsibility for what we do, and being able to ask for and get help from others and being able to give to others. Gestalt therapy is not necessarily a goal-oriented methodology per se, but these are the general ideas that we are helping our clients with. We're joining them on their journey as a guide moving towards self-actualization through these waypoints, through these goals. So what's the therapist's role as the guide going with our clients through this journey? We invite clients into an active partnership, the I-Thou relationship. We increase clients' awareness, freedom, and self-direction. We're, of course, paying attention to our clients' body language. We're emphasizing the relationship between language patterns and personality. And we're hoping our clients will be able to express their feelings, thoughts, and attitudes. Language is a key component in Gestalt therapy because it can both describe things and also conceal them. By focusing on language, clients are able to increase their awareness of what they're experiencing in the present moment. They're also more able to identify how they're avoiding coming into contact with the here and now experience. We do this through it talk. When clients say it instead of I, they're depersonalizing. They're removing themselves from the equation. So the counselor may ask them to put I back in the statement. It makes me feel sad when my brother forgets my birthday. Rather, I feel sad when my brother forgets my birthday. Removing the it, replacing it with I. That increases our contact with our emotional experience, increases contact with the here and now. Another is you talk. 
global and impersonal language keeps the person hidden. The therapist will point out generalized uses of the word you and invite the client to experiment with substituting I when this is meant. The idea of questions in Gestalt therapy is another way of looking at how clients can hide themselves in the language that they're using. Rather than making direct personal statements, clients may use questions to try and convey something while removing their personhood or removing that contact, decrease their contact by using questions. Gestalt therapists will oftentimes have a no questions type of policy. And that's not that they are not able to ask the therapist questions, but we're going to be calling out when you're using questions to decrease contact and asking you to reframe those things, re-say that as a statement rather than a question. So an example of this could be a client who is struggling with something and they might say something to this effect. Is this even possible? How can anyone possibly even know that? It's so confusing, isn't it? What are they really trying to say in there? I feel like I can't do this. I feel inadequate. I feel scared. So by identifying when clients are using questions to hide, we can use that, point it out, and ask to rephrase so that we're increasing contact with the emotional experience. We're also looking out for language that denies power. Sometimes our clients have a tendency to add qualifiers or disclaimers to their statements, like, sort of, I guess, I think that, rather than saying things such as, I believe this, I feel this, they may say things like, well, I kind of think, you know, that it might be okay to feel a little sad about my mom's death. Instead of just saying, I am sad that my mom died. So language that denies power. Another way that we can uh, hear language that denies power and is totally evasive, things like, I guess, or I don't know. Challenge that. We can roll with conflict in gestalt therapy. Is it that you don't know or you don't want to know? We also really want to pay attention to our clients' metaphors. There's a reason why that language is being used. Rather than what message are they trying to convey, that's also language we can use to communicate with them. Your book utilizes uh, examples such as, it's hard for me to spill my guts in here, or I feel like I have a hole in my soul. But there's some suppressed internal dialogue beneath these metaphors. And that can lead us to identifying some unfinished business. So for an example that your book uses, the client who says that they feel like they've been put through a meat grinder, the therapist could ask, what's your experience of being around meat? Or who is doing the grinding? It's important to open up the dialogue so the client really explores this. And sometimes it feels silly, like the question of who, what's your experience of being around ground meat? That might seem unusual at first, but it might lead to a memory of, uh, you know, making hamburger patties for a 4th of July barbecue. And maybe there's some unfinished business from that memory or from a person within that memory. The idea with metaphors is that, yes, there's a message being communicated through the metaphor, 
But there's something else, some unfinished business, oftentimes hiding within that metaphor. So use the language of the metaphor to explore that. Part of the therapist's work in this is to help the client understand the meaning of their metaphors. Finally, we're listening for language that uncovers a story. Irv Polster, one of the founding fathers of Gestalt Therapy, referred to it as fleshing out a flash. He reported that clients will often use language that is elusive, but it gives us clues to a story that illustrates some of their life struggles. One of the ways that therapists also hone their detective skills is learning to pick out a small part of a story, focus on it, and develop that element. This again is where a phenomenological perspective comes in, that we're paying attention to what is fascinating about the person who's sitting in front of you and trying to get that person to tell a story. Recognizing that the words we choose, whether it's conscious or not, has significant meaning. And sometimes the unconscious choice of words is the most significant part. So we're really listening to the client's words. We're listening to the way that they're describing things and using that language to open up the conversation and explore the unfinished business that's hiding underneath it. One of the nice things about gestalt therapy is that it's basically concerned with the obvious and taking things that are obvious to the therapist and making them obvious to the client in an exploratory, guiding kind of way. So it's truthfully very simple. It's a very logical approach, but that doesn't necessarily mean that rolling it out in the therapy office is an easy task. The techniques and procedures used in Gestalt therapy are referred to as exercises and experiments. Exercises are ready-made techniques that are sometimes used to make something happen in the therapy session or to achieve a goal. It can be a catalyst for promoting interaction among members of a therapy group. Wait, what? They can be counseling information. Oh. Experiments, in contrast, grow out of the interaction between the client and the therapist. They emerge from the process. They can be considered the cornerstone of experiential learning. Another way of looking at this, according to Melnick and Nevis, because experiments and techniques and all these terms get mixed up sometimes, A technique is a performed experiment with specific learning goals. An experiment, on the other hand, flows directly from psychotherapy theory and is crafted to fit the individual as he or she exists in the here and now. Experiments are born out of the real-time relationship between the client and the therapist, and an exercise can be something like a worksheet or using one of the following strategies in the session. First is the internal dialogue exercise. This is where the therapist focuses on the client's internal dialogue, which gets split into two separate functions, the top dog and the underdog. Therapy often focuses on the battle that exists between these two. The internal top dog is the righteous, authoritarian, moralistic, demanding, bossy, and manipulative part of ourselves. 
It's the critical parent that badgers with the shoulds and the oughts. One of the jokes in therapy is that you need to stop shoulding yourself. This is a play on words with some profanity here. Um, But the idea that we live by the moral code of should, I should do this, I should be able to do that, I should be able to get over this person, getting rid of the shoulds. The shoulds live in that top dog internal dialogue. I should do this, I ought to do this. The top dog manipulates uh, the person with threats of catastrophe. The underdog manipulates by playing the role of the victim. It's defensive and apologetic, perceived as helpless and weak, and it feigns powerlessness. This is the passive side, the one without responsibility, and the one that's good at coming up with excuses. So the top dog and the underdog are constantly struggling for control. The struggle helps to explain why our resolutions and promises often go unfulfilled. The conflict between these two opposing forces is rooted in the mechanism of introjection, which involves incorporating the aspects of others, usually our parents, into our personality. So it's essential that our clients become aware of their introjects, especially the toxic ones that poison us and prevent us from integrating our personality. The next and probably most famous technique that comes from gestalt therapy is the empty chair. The empty chair technique was... The empty chair technique was actually originated by a psychodrama uh, practitioner, Jacob Moreno, and Fritz Perls added this into his gestalt repertoire. And it's now as mentioned, one of the most famous and well-known strategies or techniques in the gestalt therapy orientation. And it looks something like this. You and your client are each sitting in a chair or on a couch, and there is an empty chair in the room. The goal is for the client to imagine whichever person they have unfinished business with or a memory, a place, an animal, you know, whatever the object of the unfinished business is, resides in that chair. And the client talks to that person as if they are actually sitting in the chair. So they're able to work through that unfinished business in real time, in the present here and now, regardless of whether that person is still living, whether they are accessible, whether it is healthy for them to have a relationship or not, the client is able to go through the process of a here and now processing and potentially restorative experience. The way Fritz Perls used this was to talk to the underdog and to talk to the top dog, putting each in the chair at a time. So talking to your internal top dog. And what do you think it would say back to you? And the same with the underdog. The dialogue can continue between both sides of the client, and the conflict can be resolved by the client's acceptance and integration of both sides. The exercise can help clients get in touch with a feeling or a side of themselves that they may be denying rather than experiencing fully. 
The goal of the exercise is to promote a higher level of integration between those two polarities that exist in our personality and that these conflicts exist in everyone. The aim is not to get rid of any part of ourself or of certain traits, but to learn how to accept with, how to accept and live with these two very different poles. Some other interventions that we will explore more in our synchronous learning include making the rounds, the reversal exercise, the rehearsal exercise, the exaggeration exercise, staying with the feeling, and we'll also look at the gestalt approach to dream work. Gestalt therapy is another modality that works really well in a group setting, especially since we're so focused on building awareness having other people in the room who can provide that feedback and have that interactive experience in real time is a highly beneficial aspect of using Gestalt for group work. So rather than talking about feelings or talking about what's happened, you can use the group to have a more in real time experience. So as we talked about with um, individual counseling, instead of telling the story like it happened two weeks ago, tell it like it's happening now. And the group members can reflect on this, which can really build that uh, awareness of the here and now. Practitioners who are using a gestalt approach in a group therapy modality um, are oftentimes much more self-disclosing than practitioners of other modalities for groups. The idea here is that we're modeling what we want our clients to do, and we're reducing that power differential between the practitioner and the participants. Another skill that Gestalt group practitioners use is linkage or pointing out connections between group members, uh, linking things together. Remember, this is a very straightforward modality. So a lot of our definitions and a lot of our interventions are exactly what they sound like. So the practitioner can point out uh, connections between group members and one of the goals for the group modality of gestalt therapy is to move away from just listening to people talking and being able to uh, bring that here and now into the group work itself. So the group becomes kind of this microcosm of the world at large. Another reason why gestalt therapy is such a productive approach to group therapy is the reduction of power between the practitioner and the participant. And because we approach in this theory with a phenomenological perspective, each person is the expert in their own life. So this is where culture and cultural differences can be really welcomed into the group because we don't have to agree on whatever cultural or moral values the person is discussing. This is what's true for them in their subjective reality. As long as we're all on that page, then we can have some really great group cohesion. And that's where we can see this approach being really effective in the group modality because everyone is allowed to bring themselves fully. And rather than trying to fit into a certain set of ideas that the approach has for us kind of in a psychoanalytic, rigid type of way, there's a lot more freedom to bring in individuality into this group. And when the practitioner becomes skilled in linking different participants' perspectives or different participants' experiences, 
we start to recognize that, yes, even though we come from different places and believe different things, a lot of our struggles are, at their true core, the same or very similar. So we have a decreased sense of loneliness, an increased sense of belonging, which can also increase our sense of contact with the here and now. This is why providing a safe therapeutic environment is the number one thing that practitioners need to think about if you're going to do a gestalt-oriented group. If there's no group safety or if there's limited or questioned group safety, then this capacity is going to be inhibited. But when we are able to provide that safe therapeutic environment, the real-time interaction and the genuine connecting uh, can be a real motivation and a real um, influencing factor in change. So the gestalt approach is one that is very conducive to group therapy. And one of the things that makes it unique is that the experiments that we use are tailored to each individual member. So this is something that, of course, takes practice. It takes a little more um, experience and education in uh, to kind of figure out how to do this when you have eight other people in the room. Uh, how you tailor an experiment to one person. So that is one of the unique aspects of gestalt psychotherapy in a group setting. Um, and again, it is one that takes a little more follow-up education and practice with. Some strengths of the gestalt approach from a diversity perspective, as we've identified, one of the unique factors of this approach is that it is tailored to each individual client, even in a group setting. So this can be really helpful for clients who come from multicultural or bicultural backgrounds where there is that internal existing polarity. Am I more so this part of my background or am I more so this part? How do I reconcile these two things? The gestalt approach, remembering the empty chair with the top dog and the underdog, those concepts and the philosophical approach embedded within that make this approach one that is really conducive to working with um, diverse populations. We're also able to create experiments that can emphasize nonverbal behaviors, remembering the visceral orientation that this approach contains. Uh, so regardless of what those nonverbal behaviors are, whether a person is rather grandiose or histrionic in their physical presentation or if they're fairly minimalistic and closed off, we can create experiments based on whatever the client is exhibiting in the room with us. Uh, that's one of the things I like so much about this approach is that it's very flexible. It has a bit of a structure to it. There's a philosophical kind of skeleton around it and some techniques that we can use, but there's a lot of flexibility. So the Gestalt approach has a lot to offer. And sometimes in that offering there's strength, but there's also risk and that risk can be perceived as a shortcoming. This approach can lead to really intense emotional experiences. And think about one of the skills that we use, which is exaggeration. If you're having a, a big feeling, exaggerating that big feeling, making it even bigger. This can work really well. It can also backfire, and it can really flood our clients emotionally. So there is a significant amount of risk that's involved with aspects and some of the techniques in this theory. So we need to be very mindful of that when we're working with our clients. If you have someone who's in a very fragile emotional state, asking them to exaggerate their sadness may not be a good idea. That might actually be damaging to them. So with this approach, it's important to go slow. 
really get to know your client, really get a sense of where they are before you try some of these riskier techniques. And for some people, the emphasis on feelings can be off-putting, which, of course, in the gestalt mindset, why is it so off-putting? Why are you so afraid of your feelings? Let's explore that. But to keep in mind that for some people, something that's off-putting, rather than it being a barrier to change, it could be a barrier to them coming back to see you. So we always have to be assessing, is this a reasonable amount of risk? Am I asking my client to go through a reasonable amount of examination and exploration? Do they feel safe enough with me to do that? And if the answer is no, it's not necessarily a reflection on you. It's a reflection on the client and where they're at in their experience. So another part of the Gestalt philosophy, here and now. Meet your client where they're at in their here and now. They're not ready to go there? No stress. Then you're not ready to go there either. But you're going to keep monitoring to see when those changes, if they happen, start to happen. What Gestalt has to offer the field of psychotherapy at large is creativity, using experiences um, and experiments, tailoring things to the client's experience, uh, experience and where the client is at. So while other approaches acknowledge where the client is at and also acknowledge we don't necessarily want to rush or to push, I think Gestalt approaches this in a more interactive and a more creative way, rather than just kind of sitting and listening in the person-centered approach of, I'm just here with you. I'm just kind of chugging along this journey with you. Just adults a little more engaged in that here and now with the client. Clients are also provided with a wide range of tools for discovering new facets of themselves and changing their lives. Some of these other approaches we've talked about didn't even have techniques affiliated with them. It was more so a school of thought. So one of the things that I think new therapists especially really appreciate about Gestalt is that it offers practical tools for staying in the here and now rather than having to constantly challenge or push clients, which psychoanalytic tends to do. It kind of wants to push our clients into insight. Uh, But with Gestalt and these more existential approaches, we're really staying with the client where they are. And again, Gestalt offers tools for helping our clients with that process which also gives us a bit of a helping hand in the office as well. The Gestalt approach to working with dreams is a unique pathway for people to increase their awareness of key themes in their lives. And remember that Gestalt dream interpretation is different than psychoanalytic Freud dream interpretation, where the client tells us their dream and we tell them what it means. We're on the client's pace here. So the client is the one who's kind of dictating what's happening. And we're more so looking for themes. Gestalt also offers a holistic approach, which so far, the other approaches we've studied have not done. It's been that the brain is the most important organ in the body, according to the brain, of course. Uh, But Gestalt offers that the body itself can also give us a lot of feedback. It's equally important. Thoughts, feelings, and behaviors all matter. We're taking a holistic approach. So our role is to assist the client to increase awareness that will allow for increased self-awareness, which can lead to re-identifying with parts of ourselves as we're moving towards that holistic acceptance 
of ourselves, the Gestalt approach allows us to re-identify with parts that we have cut off or that we've silenced because they were undesirable for various reasons. And finally, Gestalt offers a emphasis on integrating theory, practice, and research. Some limitations and criticisms of Gestalt include the fact that Fritz Perls, uh, his style of this therapy, placed more attention on using techniques to confront clients and getting them to experience their feelings. As you'll see in the Gloria video that we have uh, for this assignment, uh, Fritz Perls is not a gentle person. That's not how we would really describe him. He really wants Gloria to like get in there with her memories and her feelings. And it's a little overwhelming for her at times. So he's pretty confrontational. Other Gestalt practitioners welcome confrontation as a style of engaging with our clients, but maybe not quite as much as Fritz Perls did or not with the same intensity. Another significant criticism is that this approach has the potential for us to abuse power by using powerful techniques without proper training. As was stated before, if we rush into a technique because we're trying to get results or because the insurance only authorized so many sessions or we just want this client off our caseload, uh, we can do some serious damage. And while one of the premises of the Gestalt approach is to decrease the power differential, some of the experiments that are involved innately give us more power in that relationship with the client as we're confronting them or as we're guiding them through something. Sometimes that guiding turns a little more into us pulling our clients down the path rather than going with them in their here and now. So we have to be mindful of how that power differential can shift significantly and very suddenly uh, in this approach. This approach may not be useful for clients who have difficulty abstracting and imagining. Um, I've shared with you that I've worked with quite a few clients on the autism spectrum. Some of them can think abstractly and do some imagining. Many of them really struggle with it or express that they feel they cannot do that. So if I keep trying to force some of the these techniques down their throat and claiming that their resistance is some sort of barrier to contact rather than a neurocognitive difference, I can do significant harm. So if you have clients that maybe are uncomfortable with or who struggle with thinking abstractly and imagining, this may not be the right approach to use with them. And finally, another criticism is that the emphasis on therapist authenticity and self-disclosure can be overpowering for some clients. Some clients love hearing about the therapist as a human being. Um, it helps reduce, again, that power differential between the two. But for some people, it's not very comfortable to hear their therapist talk about themselves. They're here for help. They're here for a professional who they are paying a lot of money to, to help them, not for the therapist to talk about themselves. So again, the key here is balance and knowing your client. Don't rush into things. Anytime you self-disclose, ask yourself what it's going to do to help the therapeutic relationship. How is my disclosure going to help my client? Maybe it'll put them at ease. Maybe it will help illustrate a point that I'm trying to make. Um, or maybe it will get them to stop talking for three seconds if I disclose, and then I can offer some insight. That is a strategy we use sometimes, especially with my very talkative teenagers. 
Sometimes I'll tell them a random fact about my dog and then follow it up about an insight related to their treatment process. But I have to interrupt to get a word in edgewise. So always assessing, is this appropriate self-disclosure? What does it have to offer my client? This brings us to the end of chapter eight, but also the end of our exploration of existential theories of counseling and psychotherapy. To review, we are bundling humanistic and existential. Under that umbrella, we had person-centered therapy with Carl Rogers and gestalt therapy with Fritz Perls. So please do review the chapters thoroughly and uh, review the videos that are on Canvas for you. That'll give you a better idea of how these play out in real time, especially since they're similar but different, person-centered being more of a philosophical approach and gestalt being a very technique-oriented approach with that similar philosophy underlying. Those videos will give you a great idea of what this looks like. And of course, when we see each other for synchronous learning, we will have a chance to practice these skills and get a feel for what this might look like in our future therapy practice.